Welcome to VSI, uh, Variation Selection Inheritance, a podcast production of the National Science Foundation through their Beacon Center for the Study of Evolution in Action. I'm Randall Hayes. Uh, tonight I'm here with uh, Len Testa, who runs his own company and another podcast, which I sat here and eavesdropped on, called WDW Today. And uh, Len uses what's called an evolutionary algorithm uh, to run his business. Uh, first off, before we get into like the details, can you tell me what, what the hell an evolutionary algorithm is? Sure. Thanks for having me on, on the show, Randall. Um, so an evolutionary algorithm uh, mimics the process of natural selection to generate efficient solutions to all kinds of different problems. In, in my domain, it's a, it's a type of combinatorial problem, uh, specifically related to route planning or path planning. Um, and so we use evolutionary um, algorithms that uh, generate a pool of candidate solutions, uh, pick them uh, at random, breed them to produce offspring, and then hopefully the offspring are better than the parents in terms of fitness, uh, and gen that, that generates better solutions. That's the basic idea. Okay, so. How does computer code breed? Ah, so, so it's really interesting. So the, uh, the particular problem that we're talking about here is, um, is, is to try and minimize the time it takes to, uh, to visit a bunch of cities along a path. So if you think of like a traveling salesman problem, where you've got the salesman and he's got to visit a certain number of cities and do so uh, while covering the least amount of distance possible. Um, that's, the, uh, that's the problem that we're trying to um, to solve here. Only in this case, right, it's how little time do you have to spend waiting to ride a ride at Disney right. World. Right, so, so in my particular instance, the business, the business that we formed uh, is, is based on my master's thesis in graduate school. And in graduate school, I got this idea that I was going to do a, a scheduling algorithm, but, uh, but I was going to apply it to minimizing your weight in line at theme parks. So I went to Walt Disney World, I collected a bunch of data, and I came back and I wrote an evolutionary algorithm that tells you... Um, uh, the order in which you should ride the most popular rides to minimize your weight in line. So, so now I, I told that to my babysitter <laughs> before yeah. I came out here this evening. I, she was stopping off to to, yeah. to sit with Jack. Yeah. And and by the way, she was very unhappy with her spray tan. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and, and, and I described the, I described why I was coming out here to see you and a little bit about the algorithm, and she was just like. Wow, that guy's a geek. <laughs> I don't care how long I wait in line. Yeah, a lot of people do actually. So, um, so the idea came to me when I was waiting in line at, uh, in if you've ever been to Walt Disney World at the, at the studios in a ride called the Great Movie Ride, and I was waiting for two hours in the Florida sun to ride the ride. And through hour so one, you didn't need a spray tan. No, I didn't actually. I had, I had one of my own. All you know, just uh, yeah, right on my head, my forehead, my arms, and everything was great. But um, yeah, so I waited for two hours in line, and you know. Through one hour, I'm like, my God, there's got to be a better way to do this. So I, uh, I just started graduate school, went back to my professors, told them about the problem. They sent me off to the library to do some research. Turns out it's a really complicated scheduling problem. Lots of people have, have, have attempted it, but most of the standard heuristics um, don't work because it's a time-dependent problem. The, the time at which you wait at the rides varies based on the time of day. Um, so if you're waiting at lunchtime yeah. near a lunch counter, you're going to wait a lot longer. Yeah, so imagine, imagine going into McDonald's, right? If you go to McDonald's at 8 o'clock in the morning or 7 o'clock in the morning during breakfast, it's going to be really crowded. At 10 a.m., not so crowded because most people don't eat breakfast at 10 a.m. But then again, it picks up again at lunch, right, at noon. 
So the same thing is true for theme parks, right? When, uh, when the parks open, initially there are not very many people there, but the, uh, the ride wait times grow gradually until you get to lunchtime. And they stay pretty high till about three o'clock when people start going back to the hotels, taking naps and you know, deciding what they're gonna do for the rest of the day. It drops down until a little bit after dinner and picks up again with people who've come back from the hotel. And then, it, you know, depending on the time of year or another, keeps getting busier as the night goes on or it drops off again later on. So, um, so that's, the, uh, that's the challenge there. That's the time dependent part of the, uh, the problem. Well, it also has to take into account things like weather and sure. stuff like that too, right? Yeah, so nobody wants to go on outdoor rides when it's cold. So you have to take into account weather. You have to take in the time it actually takes to ride the rides. Some, uh, some rides in Walt Disney World take 30 seconds or a minute. Other rides take 15 minutes, 20 minutes, half an hour. Um, so you have to, when you're building a schedule, right, you have to take into account how long it takes to ride the ride. The other thing that's pretty important, and I think that a lot of people miss, is that Walt Disney World is a huge place. And theme parks in general are pretty big spaces. Um, so you actually have to account for the time you spend walking between attractions, as well because over the course of a day, that actually adds up. To how much time? Um, that's a good question. So. A typical family in Walt Disney World, um, if you're not following a touring plan, you'll see about 10 attractions. You'll spend six or seven hours waiting in line for those 10 attractions, and you'll generally walk somewhere between seven and 12 miles. Seven and 12 miles. Yeah, so, so the distance alone from the parking lot to the, to the entrance, in some cases, is upwards of half a mile. You know, wow. And then when you talk about walking between attractions and walking to lunch and Maybe doing some shopping and you know forgetting something up at the front of the park or you know storing something in a locker. Yeah, seven miles in a given day. Sure. So there's one. There's actually one theme park in Walt Disney World. It's called Epcot, um, and it's divided into two sections. The the second section is actually built around a lake. The lake by itself is a mile and a quarter around, and that's part of that's half of one part of one park. There are four parks. Okay, so people spin. Oh, this is a, a substantial investment of time for people. Yeah, it's true. And so, for people who go a lot, right? My wife goes every single year. So a, a lot to me would be once a month. But okay, we're, we have a different perspective here. <laughs> once, never, once a year is good too. Once a year is good too. And so, at a, at a point like that, I mean, you could if you add it up all yeah. that time over the course of your entire life, that's mm -hmm. like a month of your life. Actually, I actually figured out one time that uh, based on how much time I'd spent in Walt Disney World, by the time I died, if I kept doing it, I was going to spend 3% of my life in, in the Walt Disney World theme park. So then that was perfectly okay with that, actually. That's a substantial then investment. <laughs> and so it's then investment. It, it's like, now I'm like, okay, I'm going I'm to stop making fun of my babysitter and yeah. stop making fun of you and say, okay, well, that's actually... So the, the average family saves for about 18 months to go to Walt Disney World. It's a significant financial and emotional investment, right? So we... It, so the, the guidebook I work for, the official guide, seeks to um, make sure that you get the most out of that. So we, not only do we tell you, give you tips for um, saving time in line, but we tell you things like the best restaurants and um, where to get the least expensive tickets and where to stay and things like that. So. And so this is actually really similar to a lot of the ecological foraging kinds of problems. I, don't, I know you're not a biologist. No, but, but those are very similar kinds of problems that animals solve when they're looking for food and trying to spend the least amount of energy to get the most amount of food or to minimize their danger to get good mate. Bees do very good path planning when they're looking for pollen. Um, so this is a kind of similar thing. So in fact, I think there are certain species of bees that come close to actually doing, it's, I don't know how they do it, but they actually come up with almost the absolute minimal route um, between their pollen sources 
<coughs> so they've either evolved over time the ability to figure that out, that, that pathway, or they're, they're either doing that or they're cooperating as a colony. But, um, but if, if you can follow them, you, you'll see that certain species of bees are very good at path planning. I think that's, that's part of the, most of the path planning, the stuff that I've seen about bees comes out of the fact that each individual bee is sort of random. Yeah, but collectively. But collectively, <laughs> as since they're watching each other, yeah. then even this you know, random stupid bit of code yeah. with wings, uh, if you put them all together, they're capable of doing really great things. So going back to your original question at the start of the show, um, you know, we, we have this pool of, of, of things which is better than a single individual. So, so in my case, um, when my computer program starts and I'm looking at trying to come up with the most efficient way to visit 25 rides in Walt Disney World, I'll actually um, come up with uh, random sequences for each of the 25. So just nearest neighbors, or well, it's, it's interesting. You, there, there, there are a bunch of ways you could you could populate. So I start with like a gene pool. Let's say I've got um, 10 different paths, each of which each of those 10 paths represents one different way to visit all 25 rides. Some of them are just completely random, right? I, I literally pick the first attraction at random, I pick the second attraction at random, and so on. Some of them I'll do in like a, a nearest neighbor heuristic. I've tried um, nearest neighbor is relatively straightforward. It's not great, but the, the, the benefit of that is it's fast, right? Nearest neighbor you can do in, in pretty, pretty time. Um, you can also try second nearest neighbor or third nearest neighbor, yeah, because it's um, it, you're essentially searching neighborhoods at that point, right? Right, rather than actual neighbor, um, the individual neighbor. The idea is that um, in a nearest neighbor scenario, you might be thrown off by occasionally a local optimum, but if you look at neighborhoods you're generally less likely because you're sampling more points. Right, so let me back it out again and say, so when you're thinking about nearest neighbors, mm -hmm. the kinds of things that you could get stuck in are, oh, well it's downhill from this roller coaster to this other roller coaster, but then it's not taking into account that there's another hill on the other side. Right, so so one common scenario you see in, in lots of places is, um, let's, let's suppose you're in one side of the park and the attraction right next door to you has absolutely no weight in line right now, right? If you're doing something like nearest neighbor, you might actually suggest going to visit that. The problem with that is maybe that attraction just isn't popular to begin with, and it'll always have no weight throughout the entire day. Right, maybe, does, does your algorithm take into account rides that suck? Yeah, it does actually, it does actually. I was gonna say rides that suck, and I wasn't sure whether it was. Yeah, could be that it has no weight because the ride sucks, in which case you don't have to visit it then. Right? Maybe, you're, maybe, maybe in the morning, right? Morning time is very valuable on a theme park. Um, so you want to get through the, either the bottleneck attractions or the most popular attractions in the morning. You don't want to visit rides that suck in the morning because they're still going to suck in the afternoon and there's still going to be no one there. So you save those for the afternoon. All right. That's, that's, all, that's, that's getting through. A, that, that's one reason why uh, nearest neighbor algorithms don't work. You get stuck in local optima. See, that's so cool. I mean, I've actually, we used, a, a really primitive version of that. I was never a big theme park guy. I liked roller coasters. Mm -hmm. And so we would go to some of the, the thrill park roller coaster rides at places like Darien Lake in New York. Mm -hmm. And we would go, you know, when people came in in the morning, the people I was with were like, no, 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 no. You don't go to the newest ride. That's the sucker's bet. <laughs> You'd walk all the way down to the other side of the park in the morning, because there's nobody there, right. and you work your way back towards the gate. Interesting. Uh, so, so, so you're essentially saying that because there's nobody in the back of the park, you're walking in your savings then, and you just wait for the last attraction. Yeah, so it's like a- Because you're gonna wait a long time at the stuff that's near the gate anyway, because true, yeah. everybody- So it's a wait them out strategy. Yeah. But we use that actually too. It's uh, Actually, it's funny, because I didn't, 
so we use an evolutionary algorithm. We don't actually program in a, a particular strategy. We just let it evolve and see what it comes out with. But but one of the one of the things that we've seen over time is that the program will will, will find the way to mount strategy. It'll come up with a um, with a path that has all the, you know, a bunch of popular attractions in the morning, then a bunch of shows and really high capacity rides in the afternoon when the park is crowded, and then a few more popular attractions at the end. Essentially, it knows to build a way to mount strategy just by the data we get it. So again, let me just ask the detail about how two paths breed. I mean, how does that work? So you've got uh, so you've got two. Uh, there's a bunch of different ways to do it. You've got two different um, um, lists of attractions, and you want to bring them together, right? So there's um, there are a couple of different ways you can do it. One is um, you can take uh, every other attraction from um, from one, and then every other other attraction from another. And then just avoid collisions. So right. it literally treat the two paths like two pieces of DNA, DNA and let them trade them together. sequence. Yeah, and then most of the time that's not going to work because you might have, for example, if you're taking the, the the first attraction, let's say the first attraction is Space Mountain in one, and coincidentally Space Mountain is the second attraction in the other, right? So if you take every other one, you'll actually take Space Mountain twice. So the algorithm actually has to be smart enough to say, if I've already got this, don't get it again, go on to the next one. And there are various algorithms for uh, that you need uh, that you can um, find for correcting those mistakes. Right, and DNA is not smart enough to do that. No, it because you get genetic duplications right. all the time. Right, you would. The other thing that that, that we do though, so uh, not only do we splice together, but we actually do mutation. So in the in the in the case of uh, um, touring plans for rides, a mutation is simply a swap of two rides. Pick any two positions in the uh, in the list and then swap them. That's a pretty good mutation. Yeah, so, but you've never actually invented a new ride by accident. <laughs> no, we've never invented a new ride, but we, we have actually invented new strategies. So, uh, so one of the one of the interesting things that we uh, yeah, so it, it, the way to map strategy was actually um, the way to map strategy wasn't actually used. So the, the interesting thing about the uh, the program was um, I came on to the team about 15 years after the first book was published. So I worked for a guidebook. They actually had these touring plans and had been field testing them. Um, in Orlando for like 15 years, and it took me about three or four years to get enough data and to write my thesis and uh, you know to live the rest of my life because I was going to school part time. Um, to uh, to the point where the the computer program was actually generating touring plans that I thought were were comparable to the ones in the book, and then we went to Florida to test them, and uh, and that was really interesting. So we actually picked families um, that we were able to to get through the guide. And we, we it was a double blind test, so we didn't know which ones were getting the um, the good touring plans, the new touring plans. We didn't know which ones had the old one, and they didn't know either. <clears throat> and then I had a copy of the new one too, and I was following that, following that. And the interesting thing was uh, was I, I thought maybe if we could save fifteen or twenty minutes off the other plane, which had been tested, you know, that would be great. But you wouldn't know it till the end of the day. Well, the funny thing was um, that by noon of day one. The computerized touring plan was already an hour ahead of the of the older touring plan that we're using, and all of the key attractions had been met. So, like all of the critical attractions had been met, and after that point, everything that was left in the touring plan was either a, a huge capacity attraction that I knew there was going to be no wait for, or was something like a parade or fireworks, which was at a fixed point in at a fixed time, and I knew that there wasn't going to be a wait for that. So, by noon of the first day, I knew that the the program had run had, had run well. And totally destroyed your double blind. Yeah, beautiful. Well, I, I, I was just doing it for my own notification, right? The, the other people had to walk through it just to make sure that it worked, but it did. It was worked out very, very well. So on a, on a typical day, you'll save four or five hours of standing in line. Yeah, which that's a lot of time. 
It is. And so for my nine-year-old who hates to wait for anything. Yeah, so, so my 12-year-old. He, he was impressed by that. Yeah. I personally was more impressed by crowdsourcing sort of thing where you've got the people who are already paying you for the app. Yeah doing your logging for you. So what are they, what, So we, in order to build the models right, for our computer algorithm, the first thing we had to do was we had to go collect um, data about how long you wait in line at all the different rides. So we literally hired a, field, a team of researchers to walk around uh, every Disney park every day of the year to, to write down the post- 365 days a year? Literally every day of the year, yeah. So it's. It was a lot of data. It's a lot of data. It's a lot of money. We actually have a professional statistician that um, that analyzes the data with uh, SAS regression models and everything. We actually we have we have one and a half because we have a full time one and we have a part time one. So we built so we collected all this data. Literally, we walked around the park every thirty minutes and wrote down the posted wait times at every attraction. And then we actually hired other people to go ride the rides to make sure that the, that the posted wait times were accurate too. Because after a while, they're they're not accurate. Were, they weren't accurate. No, they're not. Actually, that's a whole separate. Topic. They're not. It's um. It, it's they're wrong on certain attractions, but they're reliably wrong. Thank God. Um, so we uh, so we had all this data, and then one of the things we realized is, you know, not only do we have these data that we can use to to forecast wait times for touring plans, but we can actually forecast the wait times for every attraction in the park. So we turned it into a mobile application, and we said, okay, here are the here are the posted wait times. Here's what we think the posted wait times are going to be at all these attractions, and then we thought. Well, if you're using this application in the park, so it's available on the iPhone and Android and Palm and Blackberry and pretty much anything with a web browser. If you're in the park and we're making predictions, you should be able to tell us whether the prediction is right. Because if it's wrong, we'll just go update the models in real time. So then we give people the ability to tell us, yeah, I'm in line for Space Mountain and you're predicting 30 minutes, but it's really 25. And once we give them the ability to do that, we found out that so many people were using the application that we didn't need to pay people to collect data anymore. Like today, for example. There are 120 people in Disney theme parks right now giving us data about the attractions. And what we do is we take that data, we'll automatically update the models so that, so that they have the most, the most up-to-date predictions about how the park is going to run for the rest of the day. So we get the data, they get the predictions, that works out well for everyone. And, and, and my wife actually said, I would do that for free because if I'm sitting at a bus stop, I'm bored. So I'm going to sit down and log my wait times. Yeah. So if you're, if you're waiting in line and you've got 20 minutes, it only takes 10 seconds to log a wait time. But then you help out everybody else in the park. So it's, it's sort of like everybody else kind of contributing. So it's an evolution of cooperation. That they, they actually cooperate. In fact, the other interesting thing that they did, and this wasn't, uh, we didn't intend it to be this way, we put a chat feature on the, on the mobile application. We let people send messages back and forth to each other. It evolved over time to people cooperating in the parks to tell each other like when a ride is broken and shut down, or if a, a ride had just opened up a new, a new line, sometimes rides have left and right sides, they'll actually tell each other in the park when something is wrong. So a classic example of this happened about a month ago. Um, in one of the Disney parks in the Magic Kingdom, they had an electrical problem that shut down most of the park. And it happened right at 9 o'clock in the morning when most of the people had actually visited the park. Our users got on, online and told everybody else that was using the application, don't go to the theme park because something's seriously wrong with the equipment. You're better off going somewhere else that day. And so that was then it was a otherwise the same way strategy. Otherwise they would have never otherwise they would have had to notice, oh, the wait times are just really long. I don't know why. But now they could actually get real time 
So real information. So then in the worst case, they actually didn't have the application, and, they, and so the, for the people who didn't have the application, they went all the way to the Magic, to the magic Kingdom, got through the, the park entrance, you know, paid, their, paid their day's admission, and then realized that nothing was open because there's some sort of mechanical problem with the underlying infrastructure. And then they were stuck. Right. Our users never even had to go to the park. From their, their hotel, they just decided, instead of going to this park today, I'm going to take this other bus and go to this other park. And that was it. So it was uh, potentially a savings, not just of cash, but of, of time. time, a serious time. It's at least an hour uh, back and forth between, uh, between a theme park and a hotel. Wow. Yeah, so it's really good. So it's evolved, it's evolved nicely. Yeah. Wow, he talks fast. Next week, I'll have another interview with Lynn Testa, where we talk about graduate school and marathons, which have more in common than you might think. VSI is produced by me, Randall Hayes, at North Carolina Agricultural and Technical State University with generous support from the National Science Foundation through its Beacon Center for the Study of Evolution in Action. You can subscribe to the podcast on either our website, variationselectioninheritance.podbean.com, or through iTunes. Search for Variation Selection Inheritance. Thanks for listening.